Hey there, folks. Jeff Benjamin here, along with Bruce Kelly, for another episode of The Investment News Podcast. Wishing you all a happy new year. Hope it starts off great. And this week, we have a special guest, Mark Bruno, Managing Director at Echelon Partners. He's going to talk to us about M&A activity in the RIA space. It's crazy and apparently getting crazier. But first of all, how you doing, Bruce? I hope you stand bundled and warm up there in uh, New York, New York. Yeah, we just got hit with a ton of snow, but uh, everything's cool. Everything's good. I'm really looking forward to talking to Mark. As I'm sure you recall, it was just a few years ago. Mark was running the website here and, and running all the data here at Investment News. And he started out as a reporter sitting next to me in the old bullpen at our New York offices in Midtown. So I've always said people who always sat next to me at Investment News went on to achieve great things in life. And uh, while I just (laughs) kept sitting there typing away, and Mark definitely, with his recent job at at Echelon, I think he just started earlier this year, at the start of this year, has moved on to great things. I I owe it all to sitting next to you, Bruce, the amount (laughs) that I absorbed in that year or two years. Really incredible. We used to have fun, though, right? We sure did. Yes. Everyone learns a lot through osmosis by sitting next to Bruce. (laughs) We haven't figured that out yet. Scientists are still working on it. But in the meantime, welcome, Mark. Yes, I I worked with Mark as Bruce did. Mark uh, edited many of my stories. And I think his comment every time was, this is the best story I've ever read. It doesn't even need an edit. just needs a headline. So that's my memories. Anyway, Mark, I want to start you off with, give us a little bit of a big picture on the RIA space, the M&A in the RIA space. It's, you know, there was a little bit of a hiccup at the start of the year, 2020, obviously, with the market pullback and the people trying to get their footing on COVID. But to me, what surprised me throughout 2020 was the way it just ramped right back up. And the second half of the year, at least, was incredibly strong. But I'd like to hear it from your perspective. And and also, Mark, what is Echelon Partners? Just tell us about Echelon Partners, what you do there, and and then absolutely. Go on, uh, and you know, I would say thank you guys first and foremost for having me on. Uh, I've been a big fan of the podcast. I've known you guys both for a long time, and it's always fun to just be able to access you guys on demand. So thank you for letting me be a part of this. Echelon Partners is an investment bank management consulting firm and valuation services provider to the wealth management and the asset management industry. The bulk of the work that we do really is you know, focus very much on the RIA universe. We work with a number of firms. We tend to focus most on firms that are, say, starting at the 500 million in assets under management level and upwards. So very much involved in a lot of the M&A you have written about over the course of this year. I know you are both really well aware of what's going on because you're feels like, at least over the last couple of months, writing about a different deal, at least, you know, every day now. It's every day, my friend, every day. It's amazing. I, I can't, I was saying to myself or saying, saying to the editors the other day, I can't keep up with this. I don't know what to do, you know. It's a lot of activity for sure. And I think you know, we're at a point now where 2019 was a record year, right? Um, you know, we tracked somewhere in the neighborhood of about 203 deals that took place last year. This year, even though it's the year's not closed yet, we are more than likely, if not definitely, and still a little bit of time to go here, going to eclipse that total number. Wow. Um, and you know, the lion's share of the activity will take place in just the last six months of the year. 
so just a big picture overview, Jeff, on you know your assessment spot on. You know, the year started and we just picked up where we left off right, in 2019. There was a lot of momentum. There were a lot of deals that were taking place or in the process of taking place. In January and February, COVID hits, and it's not like deals fell apart and people walked away. I think, and I've said this before, but a lot of people just said priority number one is you know my client, right? And priority number two, my clients. And deal making in many cases was number eleven on the top ten list. And once markets leveled off, because if you really think about it, now we have the benefits of hindsight, it was a blip. It was a four-week window, give or take, right? Where markets felt like they were never going to stop declining. But once they leveled off and stayed there, you know, by May, there was a lot more confidence and a lot more sort of long-term thinking, even if long-term was just a couple of months as opposed to a couple of days, right, out into the future. So a lot of the deals that were, you know, delayed or put on hold for a brief period of time, everybody got back to work at once. And we saw a lot of activity that took place in June, a record number of deals that took place for a single quarter in the third quarter. And right now, while we're not done with the fourth quarter, the number of deals that we have tracked through our data has already eclipsed the number of deals that we tracked in the third quarter. So there are a lot of reasons for that. I know we'll dive into that more here today, but you know, we're expecting that 2020 will be yet another record year for RI M&A. What? Give us a little take on, on the, the drivers behind all of this. I mean, I, I've written a lot about the private equity influence, a lot of money getting in there, helping these RIAs, the, the aggregators and consolidators finance these deals. Private equity obviously finds this to be a very attractive market, but not everybody has private equity money. I mean, and it seems like there's a lot of deal activity going on. Yeah, I, private equity is a part of it. I think if you step back, there are a couple of drivers that you know have been sort of in the works for you know, years. Going back to 2009, when the markets bottomed out in you know, March, it's been a decade-long you know, bull market. And that's really benefited a lot of RIAs, where the lion's share of their revenues are based on assets under management. So a typical RIA firm, depending on some of the research that you look at, you know, has really more than doubled, in some cases tripled their assets under management since that time. So just the fundamentals, right? The business has become much more attractive, much more influential, and really benefited from a number of things, you know, largely the market appreciation. The second part of that is, you, you know, the demographics that are in play. Um, I think the average advisor, right, or the average owner of an RA firm is somewhere around 59 or 60 years old, right? Depending on the source that you rely on. So either they're you know, at the point where they're retiring, right? Or they're thinking about what their transition or exit should look like. And if you own a firm, whether it's you're the sole owner or one of several, there's a really good chance that this is from a personal standpoint, your largest asset and the biggest source of your wealth, right? So you're thinking about how do you monetize that, particularly when markets are at all time highs, valuations are still strong. And I think you know those sort of two fundamental drivers have been laying a lot of the groundwork for the activity we've seen over the last several years. When you start to think about you know why now, why 2019, why 2020, and as activity accelerating, that's where you start to look at a lot of different things. On the buyer side, you've seen the rise of what we would call you know professional buyers. You know, Dan Siebert, CEO at Echelon, calls these firms you know super growers, and these are firms. There's probably about 50 or 60 of them that are, whether they're aggregators or consolidators or platforms, whatever you want to call them, their business model is based on growing pretty aggressively through acquisition. And that could be 20, 30, 
you know, in assets per year. Obviously, organic growth is important, but you know, their model is we grow through acquisition. And that has become, you know, they are in many cases backed by private equity companies or they have the backing of a larger financial institution. You know, those firms and their influence, the amount of money that they have and their ability to get deals done because they have dedicated deal teams who understand the space really, really well has definitely contributed largely to a lot of the activity that's taking place. And we're not done with our analysis, but it looks like what we would define as a professional buyer, right? They're going to be responsible for the lion's share of M&A activity now, right? So while there's a huge number of deals getting done, the number of buyers, right, that's driving it seems to be getting smaller and smaller. What about the types of deal structures that you're seeing? How are these deals being financed? Is it equity? If they're public, do they use some of their public stock? Is it are they cash deals? Is that all dependent on the size of the seller? Yeah, and are they doing? You know, if you think of some of the uh, original players in the marketplace, Mark, going back ten, twelve years, Focus Financial, United Capital, High Tower, there was all there was kind of a melange or mix of deal structures, right? Cash, all cash, half cash. You keep the other half, and I give you stock and all that kind of stuff. Even going back to NFP, if you remember, Jessica Biblowitz's old firm, they were given stock. There's all kinds of different ways that these deals have been structured over time. And uh, I don't know, what could you say about where they were in the marketplace 10 years ago when you and I used to uh, have lunch together and, and how, how are they structured now? Are advisors still getting a lot of stock or, or the, do they want cash? What is, well, what's the theme there that you're seeing? Sure. I think you're not going to like the answer, right? But it, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> it's really situational. And one thing that I would just add up, up front that'll help sort of set the table for the discussion around deal structure is, you know, I mentioned the buyers before. I didn't touch on the sellers. If you look at the firms that have sold this year, they're the largest you know, we've ever seen uh, on a ideal basis, right? So you have a number more of billion firms. dollar firms, right? That was your comment. More billion dollar firms recently. Yeah. Correct. So I think that's important because you know, the larger the firm and the more sort of professionally managed and more well run it is, right? The more you know, leverage they have and the more you know, they kind of get what they want in negotiations, if you will, within reason. And a firm like that will likely have like a COO of some type, right? It could, right? And I mean, every firm is different, but you're looking at firms that are anywhere from, you know, 15 employees up to maybe 50 employees. And while they don't have a deal team, they do have a group of sort of professional management who the advisors can focus on the clients so the business doesn't take a hit while you're trying to get a deal done, right? And the leadership team can focus on getting the best deal and the best fit possible. And the other reason I bring that up is there's only a limited number of firms with over a billion dollars in assets. And it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 to say a thousand firms, right? In that, So that contributes to you know, valuations, right? Just basic supply demand. But I also think you know when you bring buyers and sellers in this environment today, there are definitely more options in a deal structure. There's definitely more flexibility. And I think people are getting really, really creative. And there are a couple of things that I would point to. For one, I would just start by talking about you know, the minority acquisitions that have taken place this year. That's been a big part of deal activity. You didn't see nearly as many last year. I think we only tracked nine or 10. And this year, it'll be three times that. You see firms like Emigrant or a firm like you know, Merchant, where they're buying minority stakes in companies. And why is that 
you know, important, right? It could be in some cases, if I'm 50 years old and I've been running a great business, I don't necessarily want to sell and exit, right? I want to sell and stay. And that's been, you know, one of the main or primary themes in M&A this year. Um, so the deal structures are different. I may only sell 20%. How big a chunk are, are these sales? They're all over the place. In some cases, they could be less than 20%. Huh. And that's sort of the smoothest and the easiest deal to get done. You don't necessarily need to get the approval of all your clients if it's below that level from a regulatory standpoint. And oh, it's a great way for that. you. Yeah, it's a great way for you as a seller to take some chips off the table, diversify a little bit. But at the same time, you plug into a platform that may have things that you don't, right? Technology, access in new markets, right? Distribution. So it's a great way for you to take some chips off the table access a real partner and grow at the same time. And then the other end of that deal structure is, you know, you may, in some cases, if you have somebody who wants to exit today, right, and wants very little to do with the business tomorrow after the deal closes, you may see a higher you know, concentration of cash or equity. It depends on who you're dealing with up, up front. But you do have a number of firms where they're looking at potentially transitioning over the course of, let's say, three years, the management team. And that changes the deal structure. And it also changes the valuation too. I think you know it, it, it's really being structured now, I'd say, as a win-win in many cases when you're dealing with these very large firms. How can you get a reasonable amount up front, right? So that you're getting recognition for the value you've created and the value of your business in the here and now. But then in terms of earnouts, how do you structure a deal so that maybe there are incentives tied to the amount of clients you can transition, for example, to the amount that you can grow the business above and beyond you know, the markets. So I think the deal structure has matured for sure. Um, it sounds a I lot more flexible than 10 years ago because this marketplace for the aggregators or the roll-ups, which they don't like to be called, of course, because it makes them sound like a sandwich or something, I guess. They used to be pretty locked in like a formula, mm -hmm. but you're saying right now it's much more flexible. Definitely. And it's not a take it or leave it environment right anymore. I think- What do you mean by that? We get asked the question, uh, is it a buyer's market or a seller's market? And we'll always respond with it's a mix, right? But you know, when you're in a buyer's market, right? Boy, being an investment banker is a lot different than being a journalist, man. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. We can't, put um, in that, we can't put that in the headline, Mark. No. It's a mix, you know? <laughs> question mark? Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, a, a little bit self-defeating, right? Um, so if you listen to any investment banker, they usually bury the lead somewhere in the right. 30th paragraph. Um, <laughs> but I would just say there's more optionality, right? There is some more flexibility. And you know, th there's for high quality firms, whether it's cash or equity, it really just depends on the parties that are involved and what their preferences may be. But you definitely are seeing you know, people who are thinking more in terms of alignment, right? How do we build something bigger from the two entities post-close as opposed to just an immediate exit, right? And that actually leads to more incentive-driven deal structures. And in the end, you know, that contributes to higher deal values if people can right. hit their targets and their goals. Hey, Mark, I want to ask you about something that gives you another opportunity to, to not give us a direct answer. <laughs> the, uh, this is something that comes up a lot at conferences whenever there's a session along these lines of M&A activity. And I hear advisors ask this question every single time. What are you seeing in terms of valuations? How much are firms worth and how are they calculating that value? 
So let me not answer that question. <laughs> answer your question with a question. No, I would I would say just in general, every deal is different. You know, in many cases, we get asked are deals at a record high level, and it's not like you know, there's an Elias Stats Bureau for this. In a lot of cases, the deal values aren't disclosed. Or private transactions, right? Yeah, exactly. Like they're very rarely, if ever, disclosed. That said, you could look at a couple of deals where, in some cases, you know, like a cap trust. Um, when they sold 25% to GTCR earlier this year, there are implied deal values. And I, if I remember correctly, I think you know, that stake had them valued at anywhere between $750 million up to a billion dollars, right? That type of deal gives you just a sense for where valuations are in the market. And they're definitely strong, right? As strong as they've ever been and you know, higher in many cases than they've ever been before. So I think one thing that I haven't really mentioned yet that's contributing to it is I think just more broadly, there is a greater appreciation for the RIA business than ever before. And if you look back maybe 10 or 15 years ago, people had heard of an RIA, but not necessarily in the sense that they operate now, right? It's really more of like a regulatory structure than a business. And I think Fast forward 10 years, that's why you see companies from you know, outside the US, for example, like a CI Financial, who are looking at this business and saying it's growing, it hasn't reached potential, it is not a volatile business at all, right? It could be periodically, right? But when you compare what a business like the RIA industry, right, to you know, say trading, it, it's a much more consistent, a much more reliable you know, revenue stream. And I think there's a greater appreciation for that. So I think that has also factored into some of the deal values. I think people are starting to recognize just how good the RIA industry is. And in uh, in the process or well, how big it is too, right? I mean, you were saying, totally. you know, the market has doubled or tripled in the past 10 or 12 years. And so it's of the size where if you're Mariner Wealth and you have 20 billion or 30 billion in assets, you know, that's a that's a real going concern. Look at Goldman Sachs and United Capital, right? Absolutely. And, and with Goldman too, right? It's United Capital is one piece, but you know they're definitely looking to build around that, right? They're definitely looking to be a bigger player in the RIA space. Jeff, I know you've covered it and there's been a lot of coverage. Are they going to buy something else? That I couldn't say, but I think that you know, they're an example of another established institution that recognizes you know, the value of the business and looks like they're you know, willing to invest, prioritize it. So, uh, so we'll see. But not a surprise. I think the rest of the world is just starting to kind of catch up to what a lot of people inside the industry have already known for quite some time. It's a great business. What about the uh, outlook for RIAs going public? I know a few have. But they struggle. You know, they, they, they can struggle when they go public. Well, and that's, that's kind of a question I have for you, Mark. It's like, and then... And I don't know if this is kind of outside your purview, but you're such a smart guy. I got to imagine you can at least fake your way through an answer here. Um, what? Come on, he's I a mean, banker now. Of course he, he can. He's a journalist right. before and now an investment banker. I what mean, if anyone can, can BS their way through this, you know. Private, private equity is hungry for this space. We know that. Which would suggest that it's smart money. Smart money is going after the RIA space. But when RIAs go public, eh, they don't do so well. I mean, they don't do terrible, but you would think if private equity wants to be all over them, that that would be the place for public equity markets to to perform as well. What what what's your outlook or what's your thoughts on that public 
publicly traded RIAs. Yeah, I mean, you had remember you had Rick Edelman years ago do that kind of reverse merger with that broker dealer out of Texas, you know, and it became Edelman Financial. He he never got big enough, right? He couldn't. I remember talking to him about that, and and after they they went private again, I mean, of course, it's worked out well for Edelman Financial and for and for Rick too, obviously, since he found another partner. But they couldn't get the they couldn't get the trading traction done. Like they couldn't they couldn't get the the stock traded enough, the liquidity in the stock to to really move it anywhere. And so again, you know, maybe that's just a misperception in the marketplace. But now the most recent one we've had is Dynasty, not Dynasty, excuse me, Focus Financial and Rudy Adolph's firm. And again, you know, they've taken some hits in their share price. But just to remind everybody, back in 2010, LPL was owned, majority owned by private equity and in, uh, in 2005, and then uh, about 60%. And then in 2010, it, it, the private equity, TPG, and the other firm took it public. And the, the firm, the stock price did struggle you know, for some time, but now it's, it's roaring. It's near, it's between 90 and 100 bucks a share now. So it does take time for these. It took time for LPL to kind of straighten out what it needs to straighten out. Sure, but I think it's in that case, you know, comparing a broker dealer that is a conglomerate, right? They have other businesses too. To an RIA is very different, right? You know, LPL's revenues are you know, massive compared to a billion dollar or two billion dollar RIA firm. Um, so I think it's a more appropriate structure for a, a large enterprise like that. I think you know, personally, my opinion, just on RIAs going public, is it's a real challenge if you're looking at a firm that has. Let's call it you know a billion dollars in assets under management up to five billion dollars in assets under management, and that's the upper end right of the RIA industry. They're still relatively small firms, right? You know the revenues could be five, ten, fifteen million dollars a year, and they may only have a handful of people on their management team. Once you go public, you have an entirely new job right, on a management team where you, know, you have to report to shareholders and you have to add layers right to the way you run your firm and if you're a 40 to 50 person operation and you go public you're not as involved in the business as you were you're involved in reporting to shareholders and as you guys know in a lot of cases the people who run these businesses are the people who started them you know many years ago and could be the people who are still even though they're CEOs um, they could still have client relationships they could still have responsibilities for you know business development and bringing in new business. So I just don't feel like if you just look at the individual RIA firms that are in that sort of size range, that you know billion dollar to five billion dollar range, it's the right structure. Um, I think that they just don't relative to other companies that are available right for people to invest in. They don't generate the kind of revenues that are attractive to shareholders. I think it's a distraction, quite honestly for the management team to be public and they don't, well, they don't necessarily. Well, then you have people like me and Jeff writing about you all day long. Yeah. Because well, you're, yeah. you're filing, <laughs> right? Your quarterly and your annual and your 8Ks and everything with the with the SEC. Yeah, and but that, it's, a, it's a pretty transparent space with ADVs and stuff that yeah, we're, that's, that's we're true. writing yeah. about them anyway. I mean, that, that is a good point, though. There's more that they have to file or it's more public. But I got to say, of, of industries out there, the RIA space is pretty transparent. 
It, it is, but at the same time, right, while they file an ADV, and while you can see their holdings, you don't have quarterly reporting where you have visibility into their assets under management, their revenues. And it is, if you really just or step if they back fire and, a senior partner or something, right? right. Uh, it's, or, a long, it's a long game. And any company that goes publicly traded, it becomes a much shorter term lens, right, that they're being evaluated through. So I think that just changes the composition of a company. And I actually think it runs counter to what most traditional sort of management teams at an RIA firm view themselves in the, to be in the business doing, right? Well, uh, and the other thing about that, Mark, is it seems like there's so much appetite from private equity investors that why would you go public? You, you know, that usually companies go public because they want the, the money. They want to be able to have some kind of a growth engine. But if you got private equity backers, unless you don't want private equity people meddling in your affairs, which they will do, but they also do a lot of good things. They'll, you know, they put people on your board. These are professionals uh, at running businesses. So it is a, it, to me, it seems like right now, at least, it would be more appealing for an RIA of size to take private equity money than to go to the public markets. Or, and the only thing I would add to that is if you look at those, you know, professional buyers, there are definitely private equity companies that will invest very directly in some of the RIAs, you know, that we've been talking about here or the sort of billion dollar to $5 billion range. But in a lot of cases, they're backing some of the largest, you know, professional buyers that are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so a firm, you know, like a Hightower, for example. So, you know, private equity is essentially supporting in many cases, you know, sub acquisitions, if you will. Oh, yeah. So, you know, their their role is becoming really interesting. And if you looked at their tentacles, you know, private equity is directly and indirectly involved in a lot more, you know, deal making than I think people actually appreciate on the surface. And what kind of return are they looking for, Mark? They're looking for 10, 20 percent, 50 percent over over time, whatever, you know, re- return on equity or what are they looking for? That's a good question. I don't think there's a specific <laughs> number. <laughs> but I think I think they recognize that the multiple is obviously influenced as firms get larger and grow faster. So in thinking about what an exit looks like in seven to 10 years, I don't know that they've necessarily settled on a specific return target because the industry is still relatively, I don't want to say immature, right? Um, but still growing. So, you know, I, I couldn't peg a specific number to it. But I do think that they're valuing the ability to grow and scale. And you know, where we are in five to six years, who knows? We may have a lot of super regionals and a lot more consolidation. That's what I think, think is going to happen. Uh, yeah, definitely. So I couldn't give you a very specific answer to that one, as you probably would have guessed. Right. What about, I want to ask you specifically about uh, a company that has fascinated me this year, CI Financial, Toronto-based firm. And it's more than just a... You had the CEO on a couple of weeks ago, right? Right. Kurt McElpine. I mean, they're, they're well-established in Canada, but they're, 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 they're kind of a conglomerate out there. They do have a custodian and everything inside their shop. And, but they made their first acquisition in the United States in February of an RIA, and they've since acquired all or parts of 13 RIAs in the U.S. There have been... Some of these other aggregators in the U.S. have criticized them for going in and maybe driving up prices because they're so aggressive. Kurt McElpine has openly said he does not worry about that. He is doing what his, he has been kind of hired to do, build a 
a U.S. RIA presence for that giant Canadian firm. I'd like to know your thoughts on that and their strategy. And then also maybe you can highlight, touch on a couple of other kind of the, the biggest buyers out there right now. And one thing, Jeff, we asked him, right, if he was overpaying or the market was overvalued, mm-hmm. right? And he said, no, we think there was tremendous room to run here. That was basically what he said, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think we had Kurt on one of our deals and dealmakers webcasts you know, a couple of months ago. And, you know, I, I've been impressed with what he's done, obviously, in a really short period of time. I think he just started in January in his new role. And then they're, you know, very active just a month later, obviously. So from a deal making perspective, they've been the most active or one of the most active firms, I should say, this year. And I think it's an interesting model that they have now. One, you know, being outside the US, I think it's a really good example of what I was mentioning before, just this growing appreciation for the US RIA industry. And two, you know, they have the backing and the ability to get deals done, but with a specific lens on, you know, sort of cross-border referrals. So it's not just buying to gather assets, it's buying. So when their Canadian clients migrate to the US during their retirement, there's a network here. So if you only have a part of their assets or if they move to a new community in the United States and they create another network here, is there a U.S. counterpart right, who can pick up those referrals? So I think they're doing much more than just asset gathering. I think they're really sort of empire building, if you will, at a time that few others are kind of thinking like that. Um, when I say few others, it's really you know the 50 super growers and professional buyers that I talked about a little bit earlier. So they've definitely been a standout this year. There's no question about that. They've done some large deals with some great firms. You know, Belasa Dinverno, Fultz was one of the investment news best practices for years, right? So, you know, they're getting some really great you know, management, talent, and organizations under their umbrella. I think, you know, there are other firms, obviously, that have been super active this year, firms like Focus. You know, creative planning has been very, very active. Hightower has been very, very active. And you're seeing you know, accelerated deal activities, which is one of the things I mentioned up front, from you know, uh, smaller concentration right, of these buyers. I don't suspect that it'll slow down. I couldn't speak to any firms you know, specifically, but I, I really do think you will have you know, this group of you know, 50 to 60 super growers slash professional buyers who will continue to be responsible for a larger and larger part of the M&A that takes place in the RIA industry here. All right. What about smaller firms? This is a two-parter, so uh, brace yourself. Okay. <laughs> it's one of my, I have to get my whiteboard out. Hang on. It's, it's one of my trademark moves. I try and, you know, fluster you so that you answer at least one of them. But okay. uh, first of all, <laughs> do, the small firms, they have a future. You, can you stay independent? And I mean, when I say independent, I mean, not part of a giant, you know, conglomerate like CI Financial, if you don't want to, I think they call them legacy firms or something like that. And what is most appealing to buyers if you are a firm that's kind of thinking maybe I'll put myself on the market. Let's see if you can navigate that, Mr. Bruno. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when we say smaller firms, I'll just take it from the let's say 100 million to 500 million in assets under management just as a marker. Okay. Uh, I, I, I definitely think that there's a place for them. And I think the MA gets a lot of attention, right? But what we don't talk about is what we don't see. And we don't talk about you know, these firms that are you know, essentially, let's take a firm that could be 
300 million in assets under management and you know, the owner if it's a single owner could be you know bringing in over a million dollars in income per year right um, so you know I'm just using this as a sort of a case study I think in the end it depends what do you want right and if you're happy with the business that you're running if you like your clients you like what you do every day you feel like you're fairly compensated not everybody wants to be a master of the universe, right? There are some people in this world, believe it or not, just want to be happy. So <laughs> I think in some cases, there are a lot of people who can run a business that you know, is in that size range who you, they don't have to work 80 hours a week. They don't have to sell and worry about what kind of multiple right they're going to get. They could essentially continue to do this or have a great yeah, annual income. And if and when they want to explore some sort of deal, they can. I would also add that at that size, it's easier to t- think about an internal sale or a transition right, to some of the G2 if they have it. So I do think that there's still a place for you know, smaller firms. I think just the bigger picture is the, the, the need for dev- advice isn't going anywhere right, anytime soon. And I think People are probably underserved when you think about the number of people who have financial advisors relative to the number of people who need or you know actually want one. So you know, I think that you know, there's the question about you know, the advice industry, and I think that there's still even more potential for growth, especially when you see how much wealth has been created over the last you know ten years. So you know, I think they don't have to sell. In some cases, they may not want to sell. They may be very content to continue to do what they've always wanted to do. So I, I do think that there's a place for sure. Below 100 million, I, I, I will be honest, I, we don't work with firms that are in that range. So I think it's probably hard for me to comment. I do think you know scale is definitely important. You do have to be able to have some resources to deal with some of the regulatory and compliance issues that every firm, regardless of size, has to deal with. And below that, number, right? It gets a little bit harder to rationalize sometimes. So, you know, I think that if you bucket it by size, there's a different answer. But I think in the 100 to $500 million range, there's still a lot of opportunity. And what about the second part of my question about what, and that's for our audience that that's out there, maybe potentially thinking about getting into the market. What are some of the things that you need to do to get the attention or to to get the highest bang for your buck? How do you dress your firm up like you're getting ready to sell your house? Yeah, that's a good question. There are a lot of different things that you can do. I would really you know encourage anybody who's thinking about a sale to start by asking just some really basic questions, right? These are more introspective than anything, but you know, what do I want? And what's my timeline? What do I want my role to be after a sale, right? Do I want to exit relatively soon? Or do I want to go from running a business to maybe just focusing on my 10 to 12, 20 largest relationships? So I think that has to be your starting point, right? If your starting point is, I just want top dollar, it could be you know, much more challenging to navigate the deal process. Once you've figured out what you want, and if you think that that's the right route for you to go, there are some steps that you can do to prep. I would definitely say, you know, financial performance goes out saying it's going to be the first thing that any potential buyer is going to look at. Are you a profitable business? Do you have strong earnings? Are they consistent? The second part is like, are you growing? I would say you have to be at a point where you know what you want, but you also have to be at a point where you're clearly growing, you have some momentum, and then you can also articulate how and why you've grown, right? Have you grown by design because you have a really great you know, referral or business development process, or have you grown by default 
because the markets have effectively done nothing but gone up for the last 10 years. And then you have to figure out how to market yourself. You have to put yourself on the map. It's not like everyone's a household name in the RIA industry. So you really do need to think about how do you raise your profile and establish yourself. Get a radio show. Pay for that pay yeah. for that radio time, right? Do your do your radio show. There's no question about it. Like I think that's effective, right? But there are also a lot of people who have podcasts, they write books, they go on TV. Um, and there's a there are ways to if you're if you know what you're talking about, you're savvy in that sense, to put yourself on the map. And you know, anybody who once you get known, right, and people are coming to you, that starts to change the nature of the, the relationship. If they've heard of you, if there's some buzz, there's some expectation. And then they get a look at your your book, right? And they get to know you and there's a fit there. That's when you can really start to negotiate for. And I, I, everybody always talks about optimal deal value. I think there's not enough discussion around like fit and alignment. But yeah, I think that gives you leverage to basically pick the right partner, if not, you know, the best deal, right? And the best opportunity post acquisition. All right, Mark, one final thing we'd like to ask you about is, you know, it's the the start of 2021. Obviously, things have kind of moved past the darkness of the early part of 2020 in terms of the pandemic and the kind of the market drop and the lull in M&A activity. What is is it likely to assume that 2021 is going to be another record level year? I mean, is there anything, any reason you believe that this pace would slow? No, I think this is the new normal. And if there you know, is no major event and we've had enough major events for one year in 2020 that hopefully we can you know, get <laughs> past 2021. Oh, man, did we have some major events. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there were some dog years in what this one. Year. Um, yeah. Dog years, there you go. <laughs> 2021 is benign. Let's just leave it at that. Then I think you'll continue to see you know, what we've seen for you know, each of the last seven years officially in the data that we've done and eight years, right, unofficially. But we've seen a record year for total number of deals, right, for seven going yeah. on eight straight now. So, I, And they've gone up how much? They've doubled in that time or tripled or, or what, Mark? What's the... Close to doubled, I would say. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we were seeing, you know, 100 to 130 deals a year and we could close right. 20 at around, you know, 210, 215. So we'll see. You know, those are deals that we track and are aware of, right? Um, there could also be other transactions. But I, I think this is sort of the new normal for the reasons I just said up front. It's a great business. People are starting to really have an appreciation for the RIA industry, right? The economics, the potential, and the ongoing growth potential. And then there's the demographic issue, right? Where people have built great businesses and maybe looking to exit or minimum dial down a little bit. So you throw in some capital, some flexibility in deal structure, some you know, innovation in deal structure, I should, I should say. And I don't see any reason that we would see a slowdown, at least in 2021. Excellent. Well, we're going to have you back, Mark, to talk about breakaway broker activity in the near future, probably later uh, in January or February. So keep your pencil sharp because uh, we're going to grill you even worse. This was just a, a teaser. We, we a get really up. rough the second time. So. And if you can, I would love it if you can go in the Wayback Machine and find the interview that I think it was actually the first video that Investment News ever produced. I used a flip camera and I interviewed Bruce at his desk. And <laughs> as everybody who's worked at Investment News knows, you know, Bruce's desk is legendary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Knows what. 
And that was, I think, the first viral video that we ever developed as well. The number of questions I got about, was that paper from 1982 on his desk? <laughs> My desk is legendary because it's so neat. Uh, and, no. And orderly. Uh, that would be a no, a big fat no. Definitely <laughs> not. Uh, so it, there's something nice about reuniting and there's something nice about doing remote and virtually as well. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Mark. All right. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And happy new year, bro. You too. Hey, Jeff, that was another great episode of the podcast. Yes. Excellent work there, my friend. Hey, and if it's Monday, you know that we are dropping another uh, fresh episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank everybody for listening this week and wish everybody a happy new year. Hope you had a great holiday season and uh, are all ready for 2021. I know I am. We also want to thank our special guest, Mark Bruno, Managing Director at Echelon Partners and a guy who used to sit next to me in the old bullpen at Investment News, as I mentioned before. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our producer. And you can find the podcast, of course, at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave a review on Apple. People, please, five stars. Also follow us on Spotify. Click that button. And if you have any questions, queries, or comments, you can reach us on Twitter. Jeff's Twitter handle is at Benji Ryder. And me, I'm at BD News Guy. Stay tuned. We'll be talking to you next week.